My name is Mary. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 30 to 46. Please follow along in your Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John 11, starting with verse 30. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool and kindergarten, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you are able, we will invite you, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus had stayed outside in the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people were at the house consoling Mary, saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus's grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked him. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him. But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happened. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Havel Commons. It's really great to be with you here this morning. I just want to toss in another um, plug for Ash Wednesday this upcoming Wednesday, just three, three days from now. Um, it really is one of my favorite days of the year. I guess Katie and I both share that in common. I don't know what that says about us, but we love Ash Wednesday. Um, it is an invitation to pause and to think about our lives in a different way. Um, so we'll be here 7 o'clock Wednesday night. I think Griffin even said he wanted to come this year for the first time, so I'm excited for him to experience that. Um, I also want to invite us this morning to pause here in this moment to take stock of what we're feeling this morning, what we're thinking this morning, and to ask the Lord to meet us exactly right where we are. So please um, pause with me so that the Lord can speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we come to you this morning, um, and we know that you are with us and that you love us. 
and that you are um, so present to our lives and what we're going through. We thank you for that and for the fact that you um, care so much about us that you were willing to do such an amazing thing to bring the dead to life. And that applies to us as much as it did to Lazarus. Pray that you illuminate our hearts this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So death is not something we like to think about very much. I asked a friend of mine a few weeks ago, she's 73 years old, how she thinks about death. I thought she would be, she would have an interesting perspective. And um, she paused for a moment and then she said, I think the Lord's going to return before I go. <laughs> so I don't have to think about that very much. I was like, all right, well said, right, well said. Um, but it also illustrates my point, right? We don't actually like to think about death very much. I know Ash Wednesday is coming out next week, so we will have a chance to sit with the reminder that we are dust and to dust we shall return. But as a general rule, it's not something we like thinking about. The strategy seems to be if I ignore it, it won't happen. Caleb Wilde, in his book, Confessions of a Funeral Director, shares his experiences being a funeral director. Uh, these are the folks who are called in to come and take and care for a, and prepare a body of a deceased person. Wilde himself is a sixth-generation funeral director, so he grew up in a funeral home. As a kid, he played hide-and-seek around the caskets. He smelled the intense odor of the chemicals they used to embalm bodies. Death was just a part of his world growing up, which gives him a pretty unique perspective on how we think about and treat death here in America. One of the illuminating examples he shares in his book is how nursing homes have what he calls a backdoor policy. And the backdoor policy goes like this. When someone passes away, the nursing home arranges for the body to be removed at night out the back door when there are no visitors and when most of the residents are sleeping. Hospitals do the same thing. Wilde explains that nearly every hospital has a morgue hidden away in the basement or somewhere out of sight. After all, hospitals are places where people are supposed to be healed. So when someone dies, it's a reminder of our failure. Despite all of our medical care, we cannot always fix everyone. Sometimes people die which is when funeral directors take over. On one hand, all of this care is amazing, right? Nursing facilities, hospitals, funeral homes, they all provide specific and specialized care. On the other hand, outsourcing so much of our end-of-life care affords us the luxury of keeping death at a distance. A person who is sick or dying can go into a nursing facility and then into a hospital and then into a nursing home, and the whole process can be largely hidden from us, as if death is shameful which can make it even more scary than it already is. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a psychiatrist who developed the five stages of grief that people experience as they are dying, said it this way. She said, death has become a dreaded and unspeakable issue to be avoided by every means possible in our modern society. It is difficult to accept death in this society because it's unfamiliar. In spite of the fact that it happens all the time, we never see it. If a person dies in the hospital, they are quickly whisked away. A magical disappearing act does away with the evidence before anyone can be upset by it. Still, despite all of our efforts, sometimes death is impossible for us to ignore. I was in high school the first time I encountered death face to face. One of my many kittens that I had roaming around our house died, and it was totally my fault. I was walking down the steps in the dark in front of our house. It was dark, dark, dark outside. And one of the kittens, and I'm talking like a small little creature, it's like this big, ran under my foot. I know, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, yeah. You're like, 
horrified at me right now. Like, you're the worst person ever. Um, and I watched helplessly for 30 seconds as this small, tiny creature stopped breathing. Now, I'd happily crushed thousands of spiders and bugs in my lifetime, and for some reason felt of myself as a conquering hero in those moments, but watching that small, cute, adorable bundle of joy kitten die in that moment, like, hit me hard. One minute it was bouncing around and playing, and the next minute it just was not. And I could do nothing to stop it, nothing to reverse it. There were no do-overs, there were no take-backs. That night I realized how serious and how permanent death is. My next close experience with death that I remember occurred when my grandma, Grandma Webble, passed away in 2002. She was an amazing woman. She brought 12 kids into this world. She always had cookies in her home. She had this really thick German accent, so I could almost barely understand her when I'd go over to her house. But she seemed so strong and so sturdy to me, even in her old age. And when she passed away, I was in my mid-20s, and I remember watching my dad and all of his brothers bear her casket into the church space for us to worship. And on the drive home, I sat in the back of, of our minivan, and I was silent in the corner for over an hour, just sitting there. My parents were more than a little freaked out by my behavior. And that day, I saw how death can impact a whole family of people, a whole community. It was profound. Then in 2011, one of my brothers was going to have a child, the first baby born to any of our siblings in our family. And we were all so excited. Um, midway through the pregnancy, we learned that the baby had trisomy 18, which is a genetic condition that results in the baby having an extra chromosome. And only half of the babies with trisomy 18 even make it to a live birth. And my nephew was one of the babies that did not survive that long. He died in utero during the third trimester, and my sister-in-law had a stillbirth. And our whole family gathered around them in New Jersey, and I remember seeing her hold his precious little seven-month-old body, and it was so painful. It was so incredibly painful and sad. And we were devastated and are devastated. And that day, I learned that death was wrong, just horribly, horribly wrong. No wonder we don't like thinking about death. It's hard. It's confusing. It reminds us of all of these things we don't like thinking about and all these things we don't like feeling. That we don't have control of this life. That we have mortal bodies. That the bodies we have will fail us eventually. And that we can't love someone enough to keep them alive. And we feel pain and we feel loss and we feel helplessness and we feel anger. I know we all have different experiences around death. Many of us have lost loved ones in this room. I'm mindful of the over 46,000 I read this morning, people who lost their lives in the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. I'm mindful of the deaths I've read about this week due to violence around the world. It's a very complex topic. And I don't pretend in this moment to know all the answers. In fact, despite all of my best efforts and all of the best efforts of our sermon editing team, I'm sure that I will say something this morning that I don't mean to say or don't intend to say. So I ask for God's grace and for your understanding. As I like to say, this is the start of a conversation, not the end of a conversation. And it's a conversation sparked by our current series on the Gospel of John. We're in Signs and Wonders in the Gospel of John and the passage that Mary just read for us. Here are the circumstances surrounding this scene. We have Mary and we have Martha. They are two sisters. They have sent word to their friend Jesus that their brother, Lazarus, is super sick. 
Jesus loves this family deeply, the text tells us. He loves them dearly. And yet he did not come right away to help. Instead he waited. And while Jesus waited, Lazarus died. When Jesus did arrive, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. So there's a lot of tension here in this story. And all of that tension is related to death. And the burning question is, how will Jesus respond to this moment? Like, what is he going to do in the face of this death? The more that I thought and prayed about this story of Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the more that I felt like God was inviting me to think about death in a different way. As I said, we typically avoid it. But I don't see Jesus avoiding it here. Or keeping it far away. I see Jesus getting right up close to it. I think Jesus is showing us that we don't have to avoid this part of our lives. This is part of our experience. One of the experiences that death affords us is the opportunity to grieve. Understandably, both Mary and Martha are devastated by their brother's death. They say this same thing to Jesus when he shows up. They both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. For Mary, the grief is overwhelming. Her grief is a wailing. It came out of her loudly, pouring out of her like an avalanche like it did from me when my nephew died. Burning question, how does Jesus respond to this moment? Well, he didn't tell her to get over it. He didn't tell her, pull yourself together. He didn't scold her or make her feel like she was doing something wrong. You know, we have this tendency, I think, maybe especially in Christian circles, to avoid sitting with our grief. Sometimes with good intentions, we skip right past the reality of death and straight to our hope of eternal life. Sometimes when a loved one dies, we can tell ourselves to get over it, to be strong, to move on. They're in a better place. We might even feel self-conscious if we're struggling to master our emotions and our sadness or to contain our grief. We might even think that if we have too many tears or too much sorrow or that it lasts too long, then that signals a lack of faith. If Jesus followed that line of thought, he might have said to Mary and Martha, don't cry. Everything's going to be okay. I got this. Have faith. But that's not what Jesus says here. In fact, to Mary, he doesn't say anything at all to her. He wept with her. He wept with her. Tears rolled down his face. He felt real loss. He grieved with her. When you picture God's suffering, what do you picture? We talk about Christ's suffering, but when you picture Christ's suffering, what do you picture? The cross, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the shame. Yes, Jesus suffered all of that physical and emotional pain, but can you picture a God who cries? A God who, whose heart can break, who feels the loss of a dear friend, who grieves with a sister, because that's what Jesus did here. Jesus had emotions. Jesus loved and loved deeply. He hurt when Lazarus died. He was with his friends. He shared their pain, and he shared their sorrow. And Jesus shows us that God has those feelings. You know, if we're more comfortable keeping death at a distance, I wonder if it's because we think that grief and suffering aren't really compatible with a view of God as powerful or perfect. But I think that Jesus is showing us that God can be perfect and powerful, and God can also feel sorrow. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to weep. When we weep, we're not showing a lack of faith in God. It's one of the ways that we connect with God, and God connects with us. And it's one of the ways we connect with each other. When we've experienced incredible loss, our hearts are broken inside of us. Instead of thinking as our, of our hearts as broken apart, 
in a thousand different pieces, we can think of our hearts as broken open, able to receive love and receive connection, able to heal and able to grow. When my nephew died, our family gathered in a house and we all sat in a circle. And none of us had any answers, but we had each other. And we sang hymns and we prayed together and we cried together. And in our shared sorrow in that moment, God did a miracle in us. And all of the broken and jagged pieces of our heart got forged together. And I still think back to that moment as a forging moment in our family's life. Grief isn't something to avoid, and grief isn't something to cure. It's one of the ways that we worship. It's one of the ways we worship. You know, grief isn't the only emotion that Jesus felt at Lazarus' tomb. He also felt something else. He felt anger. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary weeping, and, the other, and saw the other people waiting, wailing with her, waiting with her, a deep anger welled up within him. And a few verses later, we read that same word again, verse 38. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. You know, some translations really go out of their way to change this wording. I'm not sure why they do this, but they change the wording here. Instead of saying that he's angry, they'll say that Jesus was deeply moved or that Jesus was greatly disturbed or that Jesus was groaned in spirit. Those, those are all translations that are out there. But the word means anger. In Greek literature, it's a word used to describe the snort of a horse as it's about to go into war, or the snort of a horse as it's about to go into a race. It's this feeling of being fired up, about upset, furious, outraged, and ready to do something about it. So what is Jesus so angry about? It's not Mary and Martha. We've already seen that by grieving with them, he's validating their feelings and their grief at losing their brother. I think that the best explanation for Jesus' anger here is that Jesus is mad at death itself. We've already read in John 1 that God created everything through the Word, through Jesus, and that the Word gave life to everything that was created. And I think that Jesus is furious that the good world he created experiences death. You know, Jesus, throughout our series, has confronted blindness and disease and hunger. He has confronted ignorance and self-righteousness. He has confronted injustice. He has confronted sin. He has confronted shame. He has confronted demons. But what makes Jesus the most angry? What makes him furious? It's death. It is our greatest foe. The thing that we try to avoid and pretend won't happen to us, the thing we push away and deny, the thing that we can't bear to look at, Jesus is furious at death. I think back to that kitten that died and to my grandmother who died and to my nephew who died, to my deep loss and to my deep sadness and to the feeling that it was just so wrong and my feeling of total helplessness in the face of it. Death came and there was nothing that I could do about it. But on that day, Jesus did something about it. On that day, angry Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the light that gives life to all things, stood in front of Lazarus' tomb and he confronted death, our ancient enemy. And it wasn't even a contest. Then Jesus shouted, shouted, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man rose. Absolutely incredible. Jesus spoke and a dead man lived. I read somewhere that the reason Jesus spoke Lazarus' name was that if he didn't get that specific, all the people who had been buried in that tomb would have also come right out. <laughs> Amen, right? 
that's the kind of power that Jesus has over death. Come out, and they all would. He speaks a word, and life wins. There's power in the name of Jesus. Of course, the news that Jesus brought a dead person back from the grave spread like crazy in the community. And the Jewish leaders were, who already wanted Jesus captured, for them, this was like the last straw. Verse 53 says, from that day on, the Jewish leaders began to plot his death. There's a lot of irony there that in raising a person to life, Jesus sort of ensured and secured his own death. They had to stop him while they still could. They couldn't have a guy out there raising people from the dead. But that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to stand between us and death and to declare to death, you cannot have them. Life. Life wins. And this is our great hope. Verse 25 Jesus says that he is the resurrection. He says that he is the life. And that if we believe in him, then we will live even after we die. Life. Now this does not erase the pain and loss and grief of death. But it does mean that death is not the end of the story. When my younger brother was rushed into emergency heart surgery when he was 19 years old and I was 23, I remember holding his hand as he was being wheeled into the operating room. And he wasn't even conscious at this point. But I held his hand as they wheeled him away, and I said to him, I will see you again. Because I knew that even if the surgery could not save his life, and it was iffy, I would see him again in the life to come. And that assurance anchors us. It anchors us. It's like Jesus gives us a sneak peek at the last page of the book. At the very last page, we see that life wins that death is swallowed up forever, that our bodies are raised in Paris, well, that a whole new story is set to begin. And knowing that ending is the anchor that helps me get through all the pages between this page and the end of the book. You know, knowing that, knowing that life wins doesn't just get me through the pages, all the anger and suffering and injustice and ugliness of this world. It tells me that there is much for us to do in the page right now. You know, when Lazarus comes miraculously out of the grave, Jesus leaves him all wrapped up still in his grave clothes. And grave clothes would have been strips of fabric wrapped around the corpse to keep the arms and legs close to the body and to keep the mouth of the deceased person closed. He would have been all wrapped up. And Lazarus is still all wrapped up when he comes out of the grave. There's an interesting detail, right? So Jesus tells the people that are there, go unwrap him and let him go. Now, this is a big deal because it was Jewish law that no one could touch a dead body, and no one could touch anything that had touched a dead body. If you did, you'd have to go through a ceremonial process of being cleansed from being unclean, and it took you a whole week to get rid of that. So Jesus' command is a shocking one in this moment. He's telling people, terrified of death, to get close to death, to touch death, so that they could bring these dead clothes off of Lazarus and bring him back into the life of their community. I think being willing to get close to death produces life in us and in those around us. I'll say that again. We naturally avoid death. We don't like to think about it. We push it, push it way, way, way over there because death is terrifying. But we, being willing to get close to death produces life. Being willing to get close to death produces life. You see, the death of life story doesn't just happen at the end when our hearts stop beating. It starts happening the moment we trust Christ. 
When we trust Christ, his new life is born in us, and the old life in us starts to die. We describe this often as a transformation that's happening in us. Transformation is just about in every single church's vision statement on there somewhere on their website. It says transformation. But I think transformation is too mild. The change Christ works in us is so dramatic that the only way to grasp it is to say that we've died and come back to life. John the Baptist said, he must become greater and greater and greater, and I must become less and less and less and less. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, then you will save it. There's no other way to put it. It seems that to receive Christ's life requires us to undergo a kind of death. Said another way, if we resist death, if we avoid death, then we miss out on Christ's life. This is Jesus just flipping the world upside down. Instead of being afraid of death and avoiding it at all costs, Jesus asks us to get close to death so that we can experience his life in us and then radiate his life to those around us. So I have two invitations to extend this morning. The first one is this. Walk faithfully with those who are dying and with those who are grieving. Walk faithfully alongside those who are grieving and dying. If we have a superficial or fear-driven attitude towards death, we will push away the connection and love that we can experience with family and friends during and after the death of a loved one. When a loved one dies, the grief and sadness we feel isn't a problem to be solved. It's not a chapter to close. It's appropriate. The grief we feel is good and acknowledges the love that was shared and that we have for this one that was lost. And if the grief doesn't really go away, that's okay. Jesus wept. So when someone you love is sick or dying or someone you love is grieving, don't stay away from them. Mimic Jesus. Draw near. Don't pretend it's not happening. Don't hide. Don't ignore. Be present. Be engaged. Let it refine your priorities. There are so many things that we think are important, but then in the face of something that actually matters, we realize that those things aren't important at all. Death reveals what really matters. So walk faithfully with those who are grieving. Second, walk faithfully into the death that is sanctification. Walk faithfully into the death that is our sanctification. If we are terrified of death and we might not let all the things in us die that need to die in order for us to have the life of Christ come in. I've been thinking about the fact that even though Lazarus was raised from the dead, he still eventually died, right? <laughs> Poor dude is like the only dude who died and then had to like die again. I was thinking, Jesus has total authority over death, right? So if Jesus had wanted to, he could make it that once we believe in him, we never die at all. But that's not how it happens. When we believe in Jesus, his life is born in us, but we still experience death. I'm just like, why, God? It seems that there is something important that we learn through the experience of dying. In fact, as we follow Jesus, it will often feel like he's killing us, and it doesn't feel very good. And in truth, Jesus is killing our old selves, the selves that live in constant fear, the self that is crippled by shame, the self that finds identity in performance, the self that grasps at approval from others, 
the self that indulges in pleasures and choices that hurt us and hurt those around us, the self that wants control over all things, the self that wants power over all things, the self that seeks life apart from God, the self that worships money or power or success or security or fame or family. And that old self cannot give us life. It cannot. So if we are to live, then the old self must die. Last summer, we took a vacation to uh, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And the first day we got there, the ocean was like fierce that day. So I took our three oldest boys out into the ocean, quite a ways out actually. Um, I could still touch the bottom, but I couldn't touch the bottom anymore. The other three, they were too short. And the current was strong. I had this like terrible realization <laughs> that the undertow was strong enough to sweep the kids all out, right? So I had one under this arm and I had one under this arm and like one was hanging on the back of my neck. And I slowly and steadily was able to like walk ourselves back to the shore, dragging all of them along with me. And in a similar way, I think we are helpless to combat the forces of sin and death in this world. We're powerless to fight that current. We are caught up in death's sway. But Jesus can take each of us, right, his strong arm, and carry us through death into life. And no one, not even death itself, can snatch us out of his hands, he says. No one can snatch us away. And that, I think, is why we can be near to death. We can be near to the physical deaths we encounter into this world, yes, and to those who are grieving. And we can also accept the death that comes with our own sanctification and our own renewal. Even though we die in Christ, we live. Even though we die in Christ, we live. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, this story is amazing. The story that you stood in front of a grave and you said no, and a man stepped out. It's hard to believe that you can bring life out of the lifeless. And yet you promise us that that is exactly what you do. You will do it at the end, and you do it in us right now. So Lord, help us to not be so afraid, to not be so fearful that we avoid, that we stay away, that we deny, that we pretend. Help us to be able to see clearly this world for what it is, and also to be anchored in the hope that we have in your resurrection. Help us to feel that in our lives in these moments that we live, and to live with the assurance and the promise and the security that comes with knowing that we have your life in us, and that you will not let us go, and that no one and nothing in this world can take us out of your hands. Help us to be near the grieving. Help us to accept our own deaths each day, that we die, that we might die, that we might live. We thank you for your power. It's in your, in your name and your power we pray. Amen.